Alrighty. So, if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Hebrews. We are in the book of Hebrews, second week, which is just so exciting. You know, the, what, the, what the Lord's been leading us in this morning is, uh, is incredibly profound. And there's a really deep question that we do need to ask ourselves today and this morning. I want to start in this, uh, this study as we do that. And the, the question is this, who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? Now, for me, the answer is obvious. It's Sarah. And other times it's fear. And they're connected. And other times it's doubt. And other times I find the opinions of others that are in charge of me. And other times I find it's worry that is in charge of me. Now, a whole lot of things I find are in charge. And one of the challenges that, that we see in people who walk with Jesus is sometimes lies get in charge. Sometimes lack of trust gets in charge and sometimes questions get in charge. And there are so many things that get in charge of us. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to answer this question because he wants to give strength to people who are followers of Jesus. And he wants them to know that Jesus is the better way. He's the better way for a whole bunch of reasons. And we come to the second part of the first chapter. And if you've got a Bible which has got subtitles in it, just before verse 5, it'll say something along the lines of the sun superior or better than angels. And so this might seem an interesting place for us in our Western culture to go, well, what's the deal with angels? Well, if you were a first century Christian with a Jewish background, you would have been very aware of angels. In fact, they were so popular, they used to think, and quite rightly, because in the Old Testament talks about the angels, actually helped deliver the Old Testament law. Moses with the angels, and there is a con- there's a lot of talk around angels in the Old Testament. And it was likely that some people in the New Testament around this time, they started to get so enamored with angels, they started to worship angels. And they started to think, man, angels are kind of it. And what Hebrews writer gets us to is say, look, they're good, but... Jesus is better. And so using that will help us find out why Jesus is better. And and it might be that we look at this from a different perspective and we say, well, we're not at risk of worshipping angels as opposed to Jesus, but we are at risk of not trusting Jesus and not knowing who he is. And so this morning we're going to go through this. We're going to have a look at, again, seven truths about Jesus which come here in the second part of Hebrews chapter 1, but I want us to read the whole chapter, and so we're going to start right from the first verse, and uh, you'll see it on the screen, or you may have it if you've got a Bible with you. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. 
And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. About the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Seven truths about Jesus from that passage. And one of the things that we need to discover is that all that we've read from verse 5 through through to verse 14, there's only a few words in there which are not from the Old Testament. There is this overwhelming evidence from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is better. And so things that were written sometimes a thousand years before are being proved to actually belong to Jesus. And if ever you wanted evidence from a biblical perspective that Jesus is who he says he is, the whole Bible points to him. And so we're going to go through these seven truths, and, if you, and we will touch them. And our desire as a church is that we actually go deep into knowing who Jesus is. You know, fix your eyes on Jesus. We've already been um, encouraged to do that. There is no better way to do that than to open the Bible and to study it. And I can think of um, few resources at the moment which might be as appropriate as the one which Harvey wrote his um, study on Hebrews. And uh, last week we said, look, that's here. It's, it's been, you know, he wrote it. It's 365 daily devotionals in the book of Hebrews. And we've been selling those at $25 just you know, to cover costs and all those sorts of things. Well, had this thought and this conversation around it. thought, you know what, we don't want to let that be a barrier to any person. And if you want a copy of that, if you can afford to give a donation for $25 or 20 or 15 or 10 or 5 or 1 or 0, our desire is that you get a copy and you do it and you say, right, I'm going to use this to help me grow in my study of Jesus and study of God's word. So down the back, you can pick those up at the end of the service. They're there. Love it if everybody had it and you just use that to, to bless you to get into God's word. But with that in mind, let's start from the beginning. And I'm going to reference back to where they come in the Old Testament, but I just want to take us through seven truths about Jesus to help strengthen us. Number one, we find this in verse five. He is the Son. This comes from Psalm chapter two in verse seven. And Psalm chapter two is an enthroning psalm. It's a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that was written to celebrate a king being appointed to the throne. In fact, when we read Psalm chapter 2, it goes like this. It's really interesting. It starts, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together. Let us uh, conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. It's interesting that in, in light of the Lord wanting to enthrone the king, in spite of the nation wanting to enthrone the king, that's against this backdrop of the nations raging against the Lord. You know, the world hates God and the world hates Jesus. And the world, as it says here, which we know, wants to tear off what they consider chains and ropes. 
The world's view of a relationship with God is a restrictive, oppressive relationship. God is the opposite of freedom in the world's mind, in the world's eyes, in the world's language. And we've heard that in the past couple of weeks when a follower of Jesus, um, and you can debate whether it was right or wrong what he said on his tweet, but the rage and the anger that's come against that is exactly what is described here in Psalm chapter 2. It's a raging against truth. It's a raging against God. And it goes on, and it says, the, enemy, the, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. He said this, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Hmm. And I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. In a backdrop of raging against godliness, God says, I want to announce something. My king's on the throne. My king is on the throne, and he has a name. His name is my son. Now, my son, when God's saying this, he's not saying he's about to become. It's not about entrance into life. It's not that he was born. It's an announcement that he is king. It's an announcement that he is the son. How does that happen? How, does, how was Jesus announced as the son of God? Well, in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, we have it. It says, we ourselves, which is the apostles, proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. Here it is. You are my son. Today I have become your father. When did that happen? At the resurrection. Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the Son, to sit in the office of the Son, the Redeemer, the Savior of humanity, the King to whom all things belong. When God raised him from the dead, he proclaimed him with power to say, you are the Son, you are the King, you are the one enthroned on high. Romans chapter 1 further reinforces this. It says this, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God. How? According to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Psalm 2 was fulfilled in Jesus Christ at his resurrection when God declared him with power to be the son. The son is the one who is all-powerful. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Secondly, Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the firstborn, again, when, it's, when he brings his firstborn into the world. Now, does that mean that Jesus was born? Well, he was in the incarnation, but that's not what it's talking about here. It wasn't that God was, and then all of a sudden God decided to have a son and the Holy Spirit. That is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the eternal God. So what does it mean that he is the firstborn? Well, the firstborn is not about being born first. The firstborn is about having a special place. It's about being the one who is the heir of all things. We talked about that last week. It simply means that you are cherished by the Father and you are the highest of all. So when it says firstborn, it's saying you're the highest one. And so if we go to a verse like Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where it says this, He, which is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the highest over all creation. It all belongs to him. In verse 18, he also is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the highest of all from among the dead, so that he might come to have first place in 
everything. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. And it goes on. It says, let God's angels worship him. Well, here is a, here is a great clue as to who Jesus really is. Because you see, God himself and Jesus and right through the Bible, we have this incredible statement, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only God could be worshipped. The Jewish people would know that. Only God can be worshipped. You can only worship God. So when the writer of the Hebrews comes along and he says, um, let us let all God's angels worship him, they go, well, hang on, wait a minute, we can only worship God. And there are various religions and views around today. So, no, Jesus isn't really God, you know, because, yeah, and so we don't, we don't need to worship him. Well, actually, he is God. The Bible tells us specifically, worship him. And he's worshipped by the angels. Hmm. I bet he is. Yeah, in Luke chapter 2, when, the, when Jesus came, was born, the shepherds were out in the field, and suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to whom he favours. Could you, could you imagine the, the angelic hosts who worship him? who can't do anything, but they know him, they see him, they know his glory, they know his power, they know who he is. And he steps into time. He steps into his creation. And it's like they're, they're all leaning over the edge of eternity, saying, I, I want to praise him in front of his creation. And there in front of the shepherds around that, that place in Bethlehem, they burst into time. And they're in glory to God in the highest. They were there at the resurrection. And at the empty tomb, uh, as, the, as the people went in and they, they found his body wasn't there, you find in Luke chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, the angels are there and they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men, it was the angels. He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. And there the angels are coming to the people saying, remember, remember him, he's the one. He's the one that you've been looking for. He's not here. He's risen. Remember, he told you these things. And the angels are appointing people to Jesus, which is all they want to do. And you come to the very end. You come to Revelation chapter 5. You come to the enthronement. Not only do they worship Jesus at his incarnation and his resurrection, but at his eternal enthronements. And we have here in Revelation chapter 5 where John says, I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And also of the living creatures and of the elders, their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. That's lots. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let all God's angels worship him. They always have they always are. They always will. About the angels, verse 7, he says he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. This comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. He's the master of the angels. So Jesus Christ is these three things so far. Firstly, he is the son. Secondly, he is the firstborn. Thirdly, he is the master of the angels. He's our provider and our protector. So angels are described as, as winds, as spirits, as messengers. You know, they're, they're not just a, 
a cartoon character. They're not just something in a children's book to sort of make things look pretty. They are real beings. They are they're angelic beings. They are what God needs them to be at any given moment according to his decree for the benefit of those who belong to the Lord, those who will inherit salvation, as it says in verse 14. So what do angels do? Well, let's see what they do in the life of Jesus. We've heard that they worshipped him, but secondly, they minister to him. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is sent out into the desert, and this is straight after he was baptized. And he goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he eats nothing, and it says he is hungry, and then it says, and the devil tempted him. And when you read that story, you, you can sometimes be tempted to imagine that Jesus went on this fast for 39 days for 23 hours and 55 minutes. And then in the last five minutes, the devil comes along and he quickly sort of has a crack at him with three things. Yeah, it's a quick five-minute temptation. Jesus smashes it, and then it's all done and dusted. He spent 40 days being tempted by the devil relentlessly, continually. And every day he got a little hungrier and a little thirstier and a little wearier. And, you know, I think for me and probably for us, we, we approach temptation a little bit like a five-minute deal. I mean, I can smash temptation in five minutes. And we underestimate the scheme of the enemy sometimes. We underestimate the relentlessness of temptation and we so easily give in because we think, man, it's getting hard now. I've been not doing that thing for at least a month or a week or a day or an hour. I've thought, you know, that attitude, that action, do I have to keep going? Yes. Yes. Maybe some of us here, we're we're, we're five-minute temptation people. Five minutes, I'm done, I'll I'll give in. It's It's easy to give in. And Jesus, at the end of 40 days, tired, hungry, thirsty, exhausted, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, done. And the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Can you imagine how much they wanted to get around their Lord and Master. Could you imagine in those 40 days how much they would have wanted just to rip back time and jump in? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's on his knees, he's sweating drops of blood with the anguish of what he is about to face of being hung on the cross and of bearing the full righteous justice of God against the sin of all humanity that he created. And he's saying, God, is there any other way? And Jesus, Son and Father, have a conversation. And now there's no other way. This is it. And in that moment, an angel appeared from heaven, appeared to him, strengthened him. I wonder how. I wonder what that angel said. I wonder what that angel did. I wonder, have you ever thought, have you ever had in your mind's eye what that picture would look like of Jesus on his knees, pleading before the Father? And I, I just imagine this angel coming saying, it's okay. It's okay. For you. 
these ministering spirits are there. And they're there to say, keep going. Hebrews 13, we'll get to this sometime next year. We're doing some other things in the middle, so it's not like we're stuck in Hebrews for the next 20 months. 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. I think if we had eyes to see, we'd be surprised at the power of the provision of God in our lives. I wonder how many of us have had conversations with people who have changed the course of our life and realized that we've never found that person again. I wonder how many of us have been protected from tragedy by, by angels. I, I know someone who's, who was in a car crash and there was this flash of light which happened and the police to this day don't quite know how the car ended up where it was, but the person pretty much walked out instead of being carried out in the coffin. And there's things like that that go on. You say, well, what is this? I want to tell you what it is. It's God, our protector and our provider, issuing a command for the angels to watch over us to watch over us. He's enthroned, number four. He is enthroned, it says this in in verse eight, but to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. This is taken from Psalm 45, verse six, and it's a psalm which was written for and sung at weddings. And when this psalm was being quoted here in Hebrews chapter 1, the Jewish people who were still maybe a little confused and didn't really want to believe that Jesus was God, they would take great comfort in the reference to this psalm because this psalm is all about praising God. It's praising God for who he is and and they'd be resting in this and going, oh, finally, okay, now we can talk about God. And then the Hebrews writer flips it and he says, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. He's saying, the Son is God. And not only is he God, but he defines God. God, your throne lasts forever and ever. You are enthroned. You are the ruler with justice because the rule of your kingdom, God, is a rule of justice, which means that there's a rule of what is right and what is true. And if we're sitting in here today and we're going, can I trust God? The Bible says yes, because he is just and he is true. And he rules with righteousness. And you might sit here and say, but you don't know what's going on in my workplace. I am being oppressed by injustice. He knows. And he knows the girl in Asia who was being oppressed by injustice. And he knows the families in Africa who are being torn apart by injustice. And he knows the person here who is being ruined financially because of injustice. And your question can join with the question of all of humanity, which is this, how long, Lord, must we wait? Your throne, O God, lasts forever. And a day will come when he will make all things new. You trust him? Your trust doesn't mean necessarily resolution right now. There is, there is countless thousands of people in humanity whose blood is around the throne that's crying out saying, how long, Lord? And he says, just wait. It'll come. 
You see, Hebrews, possibly like no other book, fixes our eyes on him who is enthroned in eternity. And it demands from us that we wrestle with the eternal perspective, with the heavenly perspective. And that holds us like an anchor to the soul today. And it enables us to find a degree of resolution with the unresolved. And your rule is eternal forever and ever in spite of what might be going on now in our world. Number five, he is anointed with holiness and with joy. It's found in verse 9 and it continues down in Psalm 45. And he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness or wickedness. I, I had a dramatic dietary change a number of years ago. I used to love Friday night fish and chips. Greasy. You know, can you, can you get the smell with me? Right, you're standing outside the fish and chip shop. It's, yeah, you, you can almost you can almost kind of lick the smell, right? And, and then you then you have you not only have the, the fish and chips and the, the salt and the greases on your fingers and it's all in your mouth, but you know what you used to just cap it off really nicely to make it all break down and to make it go really good was a nice cold glass of Coca Cola. Because you see, Coke is it. It's the real thing. And we all used to have it. And as we had Coca-Cola, it used to quench our thirst. And, and then people started putting up those annoying videos of how Coke would like clear drains and how, how it would dissolve teeth. And, and, and yeah, you started to then not want to look in the mirror. And, uh, and, and you realized that your thirst for Coke probably needed to change. And now... I can't remember the last time I've had a Coke, but give me a cold glass of water any day. You see, I've trained my taste. Because I used to think that Coke was it. And now I know that water is better by far. You see, we train ourselves. Train ourselves to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. And because we love him, we choose Righteousness as opposed to wickedness. But you know, the flip is also true. It's very simple to train ourselves to love wickedness and therefore to hate righteousness. By simply choosing to do things, you can continue to train your appetite and your mind and your heart and you will actually love those things that are wicked in your life and they will take more and more of your life. And and once you begin to train yourself in that way and it gets momentum, you all of a sudden find that you don't have much of a love for what is right. And you destroy your faith. Do you love righteousness? Do you love wickedness? Jesus Christ, he loves righteousness. And he's anointed with the oil of joy, which is the fruit of a relationship of holiness and obedience. You want to know how to find true joy? It's this love righteousness. Because when you love what is right, God anoints with the oil of joy, with the presence of joy, with the person of joy, with the fruit of joy. And Jesus is anointed with this oil of joy. And it's interesting, it says there, beyond his companions or beyond your companions. 
And in Hebrews 12, verse 2, which we talked about in communion this morning, it says this, For the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when, when it talks in Hebrews about uh, the companions that he will have more joy than, there's a couple of options there. The first one is this, which is likely, which is it's talking about angels, so it's therefore saying that Jesus has a higher capacity for joy than the angels. Well, why would that be? Well, it could be because the angel, the angelic beings, in terms of their creation state, he is the one who is the creator, therefore has an infinite capacity for joy. And so he can experience and know joy, which is more than theirs. But I think there is another nuance in here which is actually quite stunning, and it's this. He will have more joy over us, his companions than we could ever have over him. And when you stop and think about that for a minute, what that's saying is this. As much as you love him, as much as you desire him, as much as you want him, as much as you worship him, as much as you take joy in him, he takes more joy over you than you ever could. For the joy... That was set before him. He endured the cross. And as it says in Jude, I will, he says, I will present you to the Father with infinite joy. So does God love me? God trust him? Does he know what I'm going through? He's got more joy over you than you'll ever have. Over him. He's the creator. Psalm 102 is referenced here, and he's the unchanging and eternal one. He was there at creation, and he'll be there when creation fades away, and he's the one who will roll creation up. He holds all things together. And lastly, he is the victor. He is all powerful. And he is in control. This comes from Psalm 110, and it's the seventh truth that we're looking at this morning. He is the all-powerful and in-control one. Psalm 110 is the most referenced old passage in the New Testament, where it says this, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is a psalm of a king. It's a psalm of victory. It's a psalm which, which references a battle. And it references a battle where the where the the opposing king, the enemy of the people. He and his army are defeated. And it literally paints this picture. It says, the king is on the ground, and I, the victorious king, have my foot on his throat, and I will crush him. It's a war picture. It's a battle picture. It's a picture of absolute, complete, in total control. I won, says Jesus. I'm in charge. My foot is on the throat of everything and everyone I have defeated. Death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin in the grave. He put his foot on death, the throat of death, and it's defeated. 
He's put his foot on the throat of the accuser. He is defeated. He's put his foot on the throat of the devil who does everything he can to try and destroy. He is a defeated foe. His foot is on his throat. I wonder what his foot is on the throat of in our life. What is troubling you that Jesus has his foot on at the moment? What's the lie? What's the fear? What's the accusation? What's the thing which, as Victoria was saying earlier on, this morning. What is the thing that you're believing which is not true? Do you realize his foot is on the throat of that thing? What is it What is it that has defined you? What is it that someone has done to you that has caused you to not be the person who walks in freedom? What have you done What you're trying desperately to please him and when you realize this morning, actually, I don't need to try and please him, he takes joy over me. It's why in the Bible it says he rejoices over you with singing. Have you heard him sing over you recently? He's the all-powerful, provider, protector, holy, just, true, unchanging Lord of all who has an army of angels and a strong foot to protect us and serve us. He reigns and he's in charge. You know, when you understand it, you have a growing bold faith because you know who your God is, Jesus Christ, who is in charge. Let me leave you with this question. How would your life be different if you lived like Jesus was in charge? Would you stand with me? I want to give you that opportunity that we talked about earlier on. And the, the, the sense we have is this, that many of us, if we're honest, there are other things that are in charge. Sometimes it's another person. Sometimes it's a circumstance. Sometimes it's a, it's a lie. There are things that are in charge of us, and sometimes we, we allow them to be in charge. But right here, right now, in this place, let's be people who say, you know what, Jesus is in charge. He's in charge of my life. And for some of us, that means we need to actually put our body where our mind and our heart wants to be. We need to say, hey, Jesus, I just want to step into the freedom that you have for me. So I just want to invite every single person right now just to bow your heads. And I'm going to ask you to do something in a second. Before we sing, if you know that there is a part or place of your life or if you know that, that the in charge one in your life is not Jesus, even if it's just a part of your life and you're saying this morning, God, I want to know your leadership in my life. I want to know the freedom of your victory in my life. I want to invite you to come and stand at the front. And just simply come and stand down the front here. And we're going to worship with just a beautiful song that declares <laughs> the worship of him. Now I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to go. But right now, before we start to worship, if that's you, do you just want to make your way out of your seat and say, God, I want to declare before heaven and earth that Jesus Christ, he is the one who was in charge of my life. And I'm going to, by, by moving from where I am, I'm going to declare to whatever it is that's holding me back that right now you no longer have hold over me. But Jesus Christ, you do. If that's you, 
in the next 20 seconds before we start singing, you just want to come and stand in the front and say, God, that's me. Here I am.